Good evening and welcome to Spirit of Grace Church. We're thankful that you've joined us tonight. We're reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And I want to just ask the question, uh, is the Bible true tonight? Uh, is the Why do I believe that the Bible is what is inspired of God or what some people would classify as the Word of God? And I believe that it is. Second uh, Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen says this: All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. Now, there's many books that claim to be the Word of God: the Quran, the Book of Mormon. The Hindus believe that the Bhagavad Gita. Vita is a source of eternal truth, and I don't even know if I even said that right. Uh, and even Karl Marx, with his atheistic worldview, claimed that his writing, the Communist Manifesto, was ultimate truth. And so in response, there have been hundreds of books written on the subject of the evidence of the divine inspiration of what we know as the Bible today. And these evidences are many and varied. Uh, and most people today, unfortunately, have not read any of these books. And so... In fact, there's few that have even read the Bible themselves. So many people tend to go along with the popular delusion that the Bible is full of mistakes and it's or it's no longer relevant to today, uh, to our modern world, that it's just another good book. Uh, but the Bible, the writers of the Bible claimed repeatedly that they were transmitting the very word of God, the thoughts of God, the ideas of God, infallible and authoritative in its highest degree. And this is amazing for any writer to say, and if the 40 or so men who wrote the scriptures were wrong in these claims, uh, then they must have been lying or insane or both. But on the other hand, if the greatest and most influential book of all ages, from the very beginning uh, to the very today, containing the most beautiful literature and the most perfect moral code ever established or devised, was written by deceiving fanatics, then what hope is there of ever finding really meaning or purpose in the world? And if you will seriously investigate these biblical evidences, uh, one would find that their claims of divine inspiration, stated over 3,000 times in various ways, were amply justified. Luke put, it, uh, put the onus on us when he said in Luke 21, 14, he said, settle it therefore in your hearts. Settle it therefore in your hearts, uh, not to meditate before what you're going to answer. Peter went on to say in 2 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So tonight I'd like to share with you some of the reasons why I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Ghost and holy men of old, inspired by His power in his presence that uh, he would uh, allow us to have what it is today. Let me just fix one thing before I go on. There we go. Thank you. Thankfully, we have all of this technology that we can meet with you online, but sometimes I just need to adjust a little bit. Praise God. The first reason why I believe the Bible is the true inspired word of God is fulfilled prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies. You see, there's a fascinating and unique aspect to Christianity, and that is the accuracy of biblical prophecy. 
There are over 2,000 accurately fulfilled predictions in the Bible, including over 300 specific details about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. For example, Isaiah 53 beautifully describes the life of Christ 700 years before Christ was even born. And even the town of Jesus' birth was foretold in the Old Testament Testament in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and there are uh, no prophetic failures in the word of the Lord. Therefore, unquestionably, the single greatest evidence uh, lending to the veracity of the Bible's claims of divine inspiration is the fulfillment of this biblical prophecy. I want you to consider this. If uh, man were able to clearly and consistently foresee the future, would the billion-dollar Las Vegas gambling industry even exist? We're willing to bet that it wouldn't. Pardon the pun. Um, As man by himself is unable to foresee future events, prophecy is a reasonable indicator of supernatural inspiration. The Bible purports to contain more than a thousand inspired prophecies, And uh, the vast majority of these prophecies have already come to pass and can be verified not only by biblical record, but also by secular history. For example, consider Ezekiel's prophecies concerning God's judgments, excuse me, against the ancient Phoenician capital of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 26. The prophecy states that Tyre would first be raised by a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And later, it would be utterly destroyed by a coalition of nations, flattened like the top of a rock, its ruins and even its dust, scraped and thrown into the sea, becoming a place for fishermen to spread their nets. The surrounding nations would witness Tyre's fate and surrender without a fight. It's a rather odd prophecy. Amazingly, the conditions of Ezekiel's prophecy were fulfilled even to the tiniest details. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Tyre. Later, Alexander the Great, led a coalition of nations against Tyre and demolished it, scraped it down to the bedrock and threw its ruins into the sea. And the ancient site became, and even remains to this day, a place for local fishermen to spread their nets to dry. Prophecy is amazing. And to see something like that take place uh, lets us know that I believe that God is involved. Prophecy is not just a phenomenon to the ancient past. Bible prophecy is being fulfilled right before our eyes uh, in the last century or so. Consider the nation of Israel. The Jews were the least of all the peoples in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, without a homeland, without freedom, serving in the, as slaves in Egypt. And at the time, Egypt was the dominant world power. However, because of a promise God made to a man named Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, centuries late earlier, God rescues the Israelites from their bondage according to Deuteronomy 26, 8, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terribleness, and with signs, and with wonders. God gave the Israelites a homeland of their own. He made a covenant with them and entrusted them with the Bible. Israel was a nation set apart for God. God's testimony to a world that turned its back on the one who created them. Sadly, Israel's history, like that of the world's, was one of constant rebellion against God and infighting, if you will. Over and over, the Jewish people would rebel, suffer God's wrath, humble themselves, regret their rebellion, come back to God, turn to him, and receives God's blessings again, and then the process would start all over again. 
finally God sent nations upon them like he did with ancient Tyre that we just talked about, and he drove Jews from their homeland. In 70 AD, Roman legions decimated Israel, dispersed the Jews throughout the world, um, and banned them from ever re-entering the homeland. And the Jews were without a homeland for 1,900 years or so. Nevertheless, God had promised them that they would that though he would remove them from their homeland one day they would be, they would still remain identifiable people and would one day return to their their homeland again if you read Leviticus 26 Nehemiah chapter 1 Deuteronomy chapter 30 and it is a miracle in itself that the Jews have survived and remained an identifiable people without a homeland for all of those years all other nations who have ever lost their homeland became assimilated into the surrounding countries, areas, regions, whatever you may want to classify it as, and they lost their identity within just a few hundred years. Yet the Jews have remained an identifiable people and miraculously returned to Israel as their home and their official homeland in 1948. Uh, the Bible does tell about things before they happen. The prophet Isaiah talked about the Persian king Cyrus in Isaiah 45, who would eventually restore the nation of Judah. Persia was a great kingdom, located in what is now the country of Iran. And Isaiah wrote during the reign of the Judean king Hezekiah, who died in 687 BC, but Cyrus did not begin to reign as king of the Persian Empire until after 600 BC, more than 80 years after Isaiah left the scene. Only God, only God could know the name of the man who would be the Persian king before he sat on the throne. And faced with this historical, prophetical evidence, we have only the following options. Either the Bible was written by him for whom time is no barrier, or it is a joke. It is a hoax in which people later scribbled in the prophecies to make the Bible look good, or it has an evil deception. I believe the right choice is that the Bible alone is God's holy and true word. The remarkable evidence of fulfilled prophecy is just one case in point. Hundreds of biblical prophecies have been fulfilled specifically and meticulously often long after the prophetic writer had even passed away. There is no book either in ancient times or in modern times that is on the same level as the Bible. The vague and usually erroneous prophecies of people like Jeannie Dixon, Nostradamus, Edgar Cayce, and others like them are not in the same category at all as the Word of God, and neither are other, the other religious books such as the Quran, the Confucian Analects, and similar religious writings. Only the Bible manifests this remarkable prophetic evidence, and it does this on such a tremendous scale as to render completely absurd any explanation other than divine revelation. In fact, uh, if you read uh, a book uh, by the, from a man by the name of Peter Stoner, he wrote the book Science Speaks. And he says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to just eight, not all of them, just eight, the science of probability in reference to just eight messianic prophecies, we find the chance that any man might have lived to down to this present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies 
was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That would be 1 in 100 kajillion, 17 zeros. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability of just these eight, these aren't even all the other prophecies, just eight messianic prophecies, Stoner illustrates it by saying, we take 10 to the 17th power amount of silver dollars, the little coins, and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the entire state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass uh, to thoroughly and blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up only one silver dollar that is marked. What are the odds? The same holds true for just eight of the prophecies mentioned in Scripture. Add to the other forty, uh, add the other forty to the eight, and the number grows to one in ten to the hundred and fifty-seventh power. The estimated number of electrons in the universe is only ten to the seventy-ninth power. That's how the science of probability plays out. That these prophecies could be accurate, and so I'm very confident in reading the Word of God and seeing the remarkable prophetic um, fulfillment it lets me know that the Bible is true and that God is, in fact, the author of it. Uh, the second reason why I trust the Word of God is archaeological accuracy. Archaeological accuracy. The historical accuracy of the Scriptures is likewise in a class by itself from all all literature of antiquity, far superior even to the written records of Egypt, Assyria, and other early nations. In fact, archaeological confirmation of the biblical record have almost been innumerable in just even the last 150 years or so. Uh, a man by the name of Dr. Nelson Gluick, probably the greatest modern authority on Israeli archaeology, said this, No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical references. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Dr. William Bright, who is not necessarily a friend of Christianity, he's and known as the foremost authority of Middle Eastern archaeology, he stated this, there can no doubt there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. There are over, this is probably a dated number, but there's over 25,000 sites. We just saw recently released some of the archaeological finds, uh, recently even, in fact. So over 25,000 sites have now been discovered that pertain to the record of Scripture. And even though archaeology doesn't prove spiritual truth, archaeological confirmation is an amazing testimony to the accuracy of the Bible. As a comparison, the religion of Mormonism makes many claims as to history, especially about Americas, and yet none of its claims have been or can be verified by archaeology seriously damaging the credibility. Consider, for example, the biblical account of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Pharaoh, Egypt's monarch, chased the Israelite with an army of chariots, cornering Israel at the Gulf of Aqaba, or the Red Sea. God miraculously parts the Red Sea, allowing Israel to pass through over on dry ground, 
and the Egyptians follow in close pursuit. But after the Israelites made it across, God released the parted water, and the Bible says it drowned the Egyptian army. Archaeologists have recovered or discovered a number of evidences indicating the Bible's Exodus account, including chariot wheels embedded in coral along the land bridge or along the dry ground of the, at the bottom of the Red Sea. Other discoveries have validated the historical integrity of the Bible, causing many archaeologists who have had a poor regard for the Bible to turn from a bias against it to a scientific respect for it. For example, in Genesis 15:20, there's a people called the Hittites. They're mentioned, listed in there. And for centuries, people laughed at the Bible for making up a whole group of people. But several decades ago, the ruins of a city located in the country of Turkey, north of present-day Israel, was discovered, which proved to be the ruins of a main Hittite city. And here's a few others that, that have been documented. Uh, in Genesis 14, the Bible speaks of Abraham's victory over Ketalomar and five Mesopotamian kings. For years, skeptics laughed at these accounts and called them fictitious, and yet in the 1960s, the Ebla tablets were discovered in North Syria. And thousands of these tablets were discovered, with many of them making reference to the five cities identified in Genesis 14. And two of the cities were Sodom and Gomorrah, that, as you know, if you've read Scripture, were destroyed by fire and brimstone in Genesis chapter 19. Critics said that the story was created to communicate moral principles, and yet the story was proven accurate by excavation. A city was discovered that had obviously been destroyed by a massive fire. It lay under a coating of ash several feet thick. A cemetery one uh, kilometer outside the city contained charred remains of roofs, posts, bricks turned red uh, from heat. And a, a man by the name of Dr. Bryant Wood, in describing these charred houses, state that a fire began on the roofs of these buildings coming down from the sky. Eventually, the burning roof collapsed into the interior and spread inside the building. This was the case in every house they excavated. Such a very fiery destruction uh, matches the biblical account that the city was destroyed by fire that rained down from heaven. And so Dr. Wood says, the evidence would suggest that this site of Bad-Ed-Dara is the biblical city of Sodom. The last example tonight is found in the biblical account of Jericho and its falling wall. Skeptics maintained for years that Jericho was just a myth. And then Dr. John Garstang made a remarkable discovery. He stated it this way, As to the main fact, there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely the attackers would be able to clamber up and over the ruins of the city. In March 1990, in an issue of Time magazine, Kathleen Kenyon, an archaeologist, says that the walls fell suddenly and the city was conquered quickly. Further study has dated the fall of these walls to the biblical time data or time frame. Uh, it's amazing. So you've got fulfilled prophecies that are accurate to the 17th power at minimum, if not even greater than all the electrons in the universe, uh, the odds of those being accurate. You now have archaeological findings that lets us know how, how the Bible is accurate. 
Then the third one here I want to share with you tonight is scientific accuracy. There is no scientific fact that has ever disproved the Bible in any way. Well, and many will say, well, the Bible's not a scientific book, but it's meant to provide a religious or a moral or a spiritual view of the universe. And the implication of that statement is that because the physical descriptions serve a religious intent, these descriptions cannot be expected to be absolutely accurate. And so we're told not to trust the scientific details of the Word of God, but only to seek the moral or the religious teaching that the Bible uh, gives us. Now, the line of thinking that like that is wrong because, quite frankly, it's illogical. And how are we to decide which statements are true in the Bible and which statements are not? If we can't trust some statements in the Bible, then we cannot trust the moral or the spiritual message that it does bring. And so the reason we could not trust the spiritual message is that we would not have a standard by which to know that things are accurate and relevant to our lives today and what things are inaccurate and not to be taken seriously. And so the, uh, the second line of reason why this line of thinking is wrong is because it is a faithless insult to the author, to God, who is, I believe, the author of the Bible. The accuracy of the accounts, the people, the places in the Bible is really a reflection of God's integrity in as much as he presents statements which are to be taken at face value and which are a reflection of God's ability to keep the contents of his word accurate over entire centuries. And we cannot have too high of a regard for the accurate description of the physical world as it's presented in the Bible because it reflects upon the God who wrote it and who created the world. And so this striking evidence of divine inspiration is found, I believe, in the fact that many of the principles of modern science were recorded as facts of nature in the Bible long before scientists came around to uh, confirm them experimentally. A sampling of these would include several, but in Isaiah 40, 22, it reveals the roundness of the earth. In Isaiah 55, 9, there is an almost infinite extent of the surreal universe. In 2 Peter 3, 7, you can see the law of conservation of mass and energy. In Ecclesiastes 1, 7, you see the hydrologic cycle. In Jeremiah 30, uh, 33, 22, you see that there's a vast number of stars. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 is the law of increasing uh, entropy. Uh, Leviticus 17, 11, there's a paramount importance of blood in the life process. Atmospheric circulation is found in Ecclesiastes 1.6. Gravitational field is found in Job 26. And there are many, many others. These are not stated in the technical jargon of modern science, uh, experimentally, of course, but in terms of the basic world of man's everyday existence and experience, they are completely in accord with the most modern scientific facts. It is amazing. You've got the prophecies, you've got the archaeology, you've got the scientific facts. There's the fourth reason tonight that I trust that the Bible is the Word of God is its unique structure. It's a remarkable book, unquestionably the world's all-time bestseller with countless millions of copies in print. A single Bible distribution organization reported delivering over 627 million Bibles worldwide in one year alone, and this was in 1999, according to the United Bible Society. And uh, and really, 
the but the unique structure of the Bible is the fact that the Bible is actually a compilation of books, 66 to be exact, written over by over 40 different authors from a variety of different backgrounds, whether it be a lowly peasant to a noble king over a period of at least 1,600 years. And these six, 66 books are divided into two principal parts, the Old Testament of 39 books and the New Testament of 27 books. It was completed in its entirely over 2,000 years ago, and it stands today as still the best preserved literary work of all antiquity with over 24,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts discovered this far, and we just discovered more recently. Compare this with the second, second best preserved literary work of antiquity, which is Homer's Iliad, with only 643 preserved manuscripts discovered today. The oldest uh, copies of the most famous Greek poems and essays are from 800 to 1,000 years newer than the original manuscripts of Scripture. However, no scholar would accept excuse me, an argument that these Greek classics are unfaithful to the original and should be thrown away like they are talking about the Bible. In contrast to that, the oldest copies of the Old Testament books are only 200 years newer than the original, and the oldest copies of some New Testament books are dated only 50 to 80 years later than the original autographs. And so just on the basis of that information, then, the Bible should be trusted at least as much as the Greek literature, which those that are in literature so revere today. Now, to the individual writers at the time of the writing, they had no idea that their message was eventually going to be incorporated into such a compilation of books called the Bible, but each one nevertheless fits perfectly into place and serves its own unique purpose as a component of this whole. And anyone who diligently studies the Bible will continually find remarkable structural and mathematical patterns woven throughout its fabric with an intricacy and symmetry incapable of explanation by chance or collusion. The human writers lived and died at different times, but the same God who lives forever told each man what to write. And for that reason, we're able to compare different parts of the Bible and find that they agree with, support one another, clarify one another, 1 Corinthians 2.13. We can go to any part of the Bible and know that the Bible is consistently trustworthy. I want you to think about this. Considering the New Testament, it is helpful to appreciate that all of the New Testament writers were of the generation of Jesus. Each writer was either an eyewitness to Jesus or was an interviewer of eyewitnesses. Three of the writers were Jesus' own disciples, Matthew, John, and Peter. And important is the time interval between the actual events, the date of writing and the earliest known manuscript. For the Bible, manuscript copies or portions exist that were written within 35 to 160 years after the original writing. Recent dating, and I say recent, it's in the last 50 years or so, of one manuscript of a portion of the Gospel of Matthew suggests that it was written about 50, A.D. 50, a mere 17 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And when these whole things hold up, it means that the Gospel of Mark, which predates Matthew's Gospel, was written as early as 40 A.D. or only seven years 
after the crucifixion of Christ. And the interval between historical events and the written evidence is far better for the New Testament than any other ancient manuscript known to man. For example, the first account of Buddha's life was written 700 years after his death. The earliest copy of Caesar's work is 950 years after it was first written. And the earliest available copy of Plato's work, the philosopher, who a lot of philosophers live and die with, his works are dated 1,250 years after his original writings. Yet none of those authors or the authority of those books have ever been have ever been questioned. And so even more impressive, to me at least, is the degree of textual variance in existing copies. For, for example, consider the enormous number of ancient New Testament manuscripts. There are only nominal differences in the various copies. The data for the New Testament is impressive. Think, look, let's think of this. Only 40 lines or one-fifth of one percent, one-fifth of one percent of the copies of the New Testament are held in question. This compares to large textual variances in other writings. For example, the New Testament is 25 times more accurately copied than Homer's Iliad, which was also considered sacred for many years and is considered one of the best copied works of antiquity. Further support for the Bible comes from the fact that the events of the New Testament are supported by the by writings outside the Bible. Corroboration is available from several secular and Jewish historians of that day and age. For instance, Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Epictetus, Lucian, blowing these names too, Aristides, and Josephus are just some of those that reference the events of the New Testament. And then another interesting thing is the thousands of quotations found in the writings of what we have classified the early church fathers, which were written about A.D. 100 to A.D. 450. And so even if all the New Testament manuscripts disappeared, it would still be possible to reconstruct almost the entire New Testament with quotes from the church fathers. So in his book, uh, The Bible and Archaeology, Sir Frederick Kenyon was a former director and principal librarian of the British Museum. He said this about the New Testament. The interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finely established. Amazing. The mere endurance of the Word of God speaks for itself. For thousands of years, people have explored every nook and cranny of the Bible. Alleged difficulties have been systematically answered, and upon examination, there are no errors or contradictions in this book that was written over that amount of period of time. So the structure of it is amazing. And then the writers are even a, another amazing conglomeration of people, uh, men who claim to be inspired by God. Take, for example, Luke, who authored approximately one quarter of the New Testament. Luke is regarded as an authoritative historian, one of the greatest of antiquity. John McRae, Dr. John McRae, 
professor of New Testament and archaeology at Wheaton University in Illinois, explained it this way. The general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as a historian. He's erudite. He's eloquent. His Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man, and archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. Sir William Ramsey, one of the greatest one of the greatest archaeologists of modern times, said it this way, I say modern times, in the last couple hundred years. He declares that Luke is a historian of the first rank. He wrote that in the bearing of uh, discovering of untrustworthiness of the New Testament in 1915. Then let's consider the martyrdom of many of these authors. We don't think about that very often. But according to sources and traditions outside the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, many of the Bible's writers died brutal and horrible deaths in defense of their written testimony. In fact, all but one of the New Testament authors were executed for proclaiming and defending their testimonies. Uh, the Apostle John was spared, but he was for forced into exile by Emperor Titus. And uh, now, of course, martyrdom isn't in itself unique. Many people throughout history have died willingly for their beliefs. But what makes the New Testament authors martyrdom special is that these men were in a position to know the truth of their written accounts. Think about it. No one would, I don't believe, no one would knowingly die for a lie. For example, the September 11th hijackers may have sincerely believed in what they died for, but they weren't in a position to know whether their beliefs were absolutely true or not. The hijackers put their faith in religious traditions that were passed down over many generations. In contrast, the Bible's martyrs were in a position to know the truth. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the historical accounts that they are referencing and they are recording. Either they saw what they claimed to have seen or they didn't, plain and simple. Nevertheless, these men clung to their testimonies, even to their brutal deaths at the hands of their persecutors and prosecutors, and being given every chance to recant their story, they did not do so. Why would men so willingly and knowingly die if they were actually lying? They had nothing to gain. They had everything to lose. And that brings me to this point as well. The biblical the Bible's unique effect on history, uh, individual men, and really the history of the nations. It is the all-time bestseller, appealing both to hearts and minds, beloved by at least some in every race or nation or tribe in which it has gone, rich or poor, scholar or simple, king or commoner, men of literally every background and walk of life. No other book in the entire history uh, has ever held such universal appeal and or produced such lasting effects as the Bible. And uh, it's the other reason why there's an evidence that the Bible is true in the testimony of those that have believed it. Multitudes of people, past and present, have found from personal experience that its promises are true, its counsel is sound, its commands and restrictions are wise, and its wonderful message of salvation meets every need uh, for both time and eternity. Now see, the Bible promises to remove the, the, the penalty of judgment, and it gives assurance 
that there's no condemnation to all who trust what it says. John 5, 24, Romans 8, 1 and verse 16, 1 John 4, 18. The Bible promises that it can make a Christian clean on the inside. Psalm 119, verse 9 and verse 11, John chapter 15, verse 3, among many others. The Bible promises freedom from slavery to sin as well as the wisdom and power to successfully overcome sin in John chapter 8, verse 34 to 36, Romans chapter 6, verse 18, Colossians chapters 3, verses 1 and 2. It gives meaning to life and purpose to life that motivate a Christian to serve the Lord, 1 Peter 2, 9. All of these things are part of the experience of a believer. Believers experience a life which they never had before, a new life which is evidenced by the fact that they are no longer full of bitterness and regret about their past since they have read of God's forgiveness in Hebrews chapter 10, so to speak. Believers experience a new life which is evidenced by the fact that they can sacrifice for others. They experience a new life which is evidenced by the fact that they can overcome their fears because they rest in the arms of a Lord rather than in the vain hope of somehow things are going to work out all right. A person who trusts in the Bible has the personal spiritual experience to know that the promises of the Bible are more than just poetry, are more than just fantasy. They are real and they testify to his heart that his trust in the Bible is not misplaced. So I ask you the same question tonight that I asked at the beginning of this message. Is the Bible true? Without question in my mind, without any wavering or doubt or, or, or even just a shadow of concern, the Bible is absolutely the true Word of God passed down by inspiration of the Holy Ghost on holy men and women of old as they began to write and as they began to read. For those of us who don't believe that God inspired the Bible, I ask you how else can you explain all of the things that I've even shared tonight and I've just really scratched the surface about the Word of God. What compelling reason does anybody have to reject the Bible as God's divine revelation to man other than fear or ignorance or a, a, a refusal to accept the fact that there's something that's bigger than they are? We should lay aside our philosophical dispositions and examine the evidence objectively and weigh the facts for ourselves because the Bible is absolutely the true word of God. And he is wanting to reveal himself through his word to each one of us tonight. It's my challenge to you. Take a look at the things of the scriptures again. Pick it up and read it and see if God doesn't speak to you in your present situation in some way, shape, or form in the Word of God. Because as many times as we read it, I'm, I'm just about 51 years old, a couple more months and then I'll be 51. I've been in the Bible since I probably was around five through Sunday school and then I have really focused on it and I've still only scratched the surface of the depths of what God has in it. Because this, the word of God is the heartbeat of God as he's trying to speak. Well, God never speaks to me. Well, yes, he has. It's his word. He has spoken his word to through men that they wrote down as he inspired them to write. And now we have what's in the heart of God. He's trying to speak to us. 
If you're waiting for him to stick his head out of the cloud to talk to you, you're going to miss so much of what God has for you in the what we call the written word of God, but it's still the word of God. It's God speaking to you and I. Would you seek him out? Would you read about it? Would you listen to him as you examine the wonderful book called the Bible? It's true tonight. God bless you. Jesus, I pray for each person that's listened to this uh, broadcast. I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to let your word come alive in each one of us. Lord, let there be no doubt that the word of God, the Bible, is your word to us to live, to abide by, to adore. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Should the Lord tarry, we'll be at church at 1030 on Sunday morning at 10110 Woodcrest Drive in Coon Rapids. If you don't have a home church, we'd love to have you join us. And uh, we'll put our services out online later in the day. May God bless you in Jesus' name. Have a great, great week.